So let's read this passage together. Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. Uh, It might be a passage you have already read before, but let's read it together again. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Um, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Who here likes paying taxes? No one. Right? And it makes sense. Nobody looks at their pay slip and says, Oh, praise the Lord. I'm so glad the government got their cut first. Right? No one ever says that. We always look at our pay slip and we're always like, Those thieves. You know, there's something negative that comes out of our minds. But can you imagine if tax collectors existed today? People who went around door to door collecting what you owed to the government because of the work that you did. Right? If that person came to your door, would you be happy? Would you answer that door quickly or would you try to hide, right? No one would like that. And that's exactly how it was back in Jesus' day. There were tax collectors that went around door to door demanding the taxes that are owed to the Roman government. And everybody hated that person, not because the person himself was bad, but because just the job itself lends itself to being hated. Everyone hated the tax collector. However, what made it worse for The tax collector here is that the Roman government empowered these tax collectors and actually encouraged them to collect even more than what they were required to. So all these tax collectors decided to cheat the people very generously. Is that the the right way to say it? They took a lot more money than what they were supposed to, and there was nothing that the people could do. And as long as the government got their cut, they were happy. So you can imagine Zacchaeus was not liked, but... What made it even worse was that the Roman government was very smart. They hired Jews to collect from Jews, which which meant that these guys were the outcasts of their society. As a matter of fact, all the priests, even at the temple, put tax collectors on the same level as prostitutes and thieves and murderers. Therefore, they were excluded from their temple. So, you know, these Jewish people, these Jewish tax collectors were absolutely hated by their whole society. Some of them were even thrown out of their houses because their parents were ashamed at how their kids were making money. So can you imagine what the life of a tax collector might have been back then? They were filthy rich. So they had the nicest houses, you know, in the land. You know, they probably had all the new toys and they they had, all, you know, the biggest chariots. I don't know if they would, I don't know what they rode back then. Whatever. You know, they had the biggest horses. I don't know. You know, they had everything. They had all the newest toys and they lived a life of luxury. They ate the best foods. They probably dined at the best restaurants. Their life was a life of pure luxury. But you got to imagine that if you're hated that much by all society, you had to have been pretty lonely as well. Right? I mean, he was the most hated person in town. He probably had no friends. To everyone, uh, to all the Jewish people, he was a traitor. 
you know, and they all called him a traitor. And so uh, they were all hated. Zacchaeus, being the chief tax collector, was hated even more. And the reason why was because as a chief tax collector, you actually get a cut of all the other tax collectors' earnings. So, you know, they all, they all hated you, too. So this guy really had no friends. But he was really rich, okay? Now, the thing is this. I'm no psychologist. But I got to imagine that anyone who lives that kind of life, no matter how rich you are, if you have no friends and you're hated by society, you're eventually going to get pretty lonely, possibly even pretty depressed, right? And maybe you start to really doubt your self-worth, regardless of how much, you know, whatever you have in your driveway or whatever you have in your closet or whatever it is. And maybe that's what happened to him because it's a very rare thing for one of the richest guys in town to be seen running across town in order to see a religious figure, right? When was the last time you heard of a rich man running to find God, right? You don't hear about stories like that. So that's the question, right? What makes a rich man, one who has everything, every possession and every comfort in life, run to seek after God? And the answer is God. God makes people want him. You know, he's the one that makes us hungry for him. He's the one that causes us to realize that there really is something more to this life than becoming just rich or famous you know, having a nice two-car garage house with a nice car in the garage, you know, with some kids and with a white picket fence, that kind of stuff, the American dream, the Australian dream. God's the one that makes us realize that there's so much more to life than that. And before I get to why he does, let me share with you how he does. The way he does that, he brings us to the point where nothing in this life will satisfy us anymore, even the best stuff, you know. It might make you temporarily happy, but eventually you get to the point where you realize it, you're still not happy, nor are you satisfied. You, all of a sudden, he brings things like discontent. He brings things like discomfort into your life. All of a sudden, you wake up and you sense this, you have the sense of, again, a lacking, a lacking of holiness. You lack peace within your life. Maybe you even lack a clear conscience. Those are some of the telltale signs that God is at work in a person's life. Believe it or not, I've actually pastored a few millionaires before in my life. It's really weird, discipling millionaires, right? Because they just think on a totally different level. They operate their lives on a totally different level. But do you know what I found in common with millionaires who want to seek after God? Do you know what the, one of the biggest struggles they have is? Money, right? Even though they have tons of it, that's the reason why they struggle with it so much. Because ultimately, they try to replace God with riches all the time. You know, the moment they feel lonely or the moment they feel empty or dissatisfied, you know what they do? They go out and buy another car. You know, they upgrade their house. You know, they do crazy things like that. And I've seen it over and over and over again. But what they discover is that it just masks the numbness because they eventually get dissatisfied again. And they eventually get like discontent again, like a few days later. You know, I've seen guys like buy cars, like two, three cars in a week. Because they're just so discontent, right? This is the, this is, these are not our stories probably, unless, but if it's your story, please come and talk to me, right? I'd like to get to know you better. Anyway, because anyway, anyway, like, what am I talking about? Okay. Where am I? Anyway, but you know what my greatest privilege is? Discipling really like, like millionaires. I get to tell them, hey, you know, that third car didn't satisfy, did it? But the reason why you still feel empty and the reason why you still feel dissatisfied is because that is God 
personally calling you to him. God's giving you those things so that you can spend time with him, so that he can prove to you that the things of this world, no matter how great they might be, will never be able to satisfy you. And it's not just possessions, but it's also things like relationships. It's things like education. A lot of us people, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, if I go to uni and I get that degree, and if I get that job and I establish that career, I'm sure there's a part of me that will be deeply satisfied. Or if I, you know, find that hottie, or if I, you know, marry that really handsome guy, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure everything will take care of itself. Or people even think, no, if I just have like two or three kids, I'm sure children will satisfy my deepest longings. But you want to know something? There are students out there. There are graduates out there. There are married people out there. There are parents out there. There are people who have successful careers who are absolutely dissatisfied with their lives. And that's when you know that God is trying to tell you something personally, right? That there is something fundamentally missing within your life, or or maybe even more accurately, there is someone who is fundamentally missing in your life. And what's missing and who's missing in your life is God. All of us were created to have an eternal relationship with God himself. And that's amazing. I just want you to think about that statement. All of us were created to have a personal relationship with the almighty God. Isn't that amazing that God wants to know us and hang out with us and be with us and we get to do the same. That's what you were created for. We were created to be connected to the eternal and to be connected to eternal things and to live for eternal things and to live in such a way that God uses us eternally. It's absolutely amazing. And that's the reason why the things of the world will never satisfy. They were never designed to. Relationships, possessions, things, career, status. They were never designed to satisfy you. But yet we search for that, right? And so that's why God created. God created us so that we could be eternally satisfied in him alone. There are only three things that are eternal. That's him, his word, and his people. And that's why we were created to live for those things. But the reason why some people are not connected with God is very, very simple. They are lost. Okay, our pastor today is talking about lost people. You guys know what the word lost is? Lost is a theological word. Lost is the theological word for people who are separated from God because of their sins. Whether they know it or not, that's what it theologically means, to be lost. In our passage today, Zacchaeus was lost, right? And there are many in this world who are lost in God's eyes. But here's the good news. What happens when a child gets lost? Like if you've ever seen a child get lost in a supermarket or in a, a big W or whatever. Like, like there is nothing that a parent will not do to find this kid, right? Because they love their children. And there's nothing a parent wouldn't do not only to find that kid, but to reconnect with their child. I've, you know, ugh, anyway, if I ever lost my kid anywhere, I would be on an all out search to find my kid. I don't, I don't think I would stop at anything to find my kid. And God is no Different. It's one thing to say that people are theologically lost, but it's another thing to know the reality that there are so many that God, 
God has lost all these children that he's searching for, that he's seeking after, that he wants to reconnect with. And that is the heart of our passage today. And so, you know, it's a matter of two things at work. When we see someone like Zechariah run across town, it's a matter of God putting upon his heart that he needs God, that Zechariah needs God, and it makes him hunger for him. But it's also God pursuing Zechariah in order to reconnect reconnect with him. And so we see God here orchestrating all of this in people's lives so that they can be found. Now, one last thing before we get to get to our passage today. Like, one thing you have to realize is is Zacchaeus is someone, you know, we painted the picture of him pretty clearly, but there's one more thing I want to say about him. Zacchaeus was probably the guy in town that everybody wrote off, right? If everyone's like, hey, let's take a bet. Who here in our town is the biggest candidate for salvation? Who do you think God's going to run after and save next? I bet Zacchaeus doesn't even make the tipping charts. You know what I'm saying? He's not even a candidate for that because he's so messed up. But one thing we realize is that God loves working upon lives that society has rejected. God loves working upon lives that society loves to marginalize. And it's obvious from this passage that God has been working in this man's life for a very long while, causing him to hunger for God, right? And this was going to be the moment that he finally gets to reconnect with his father, his heavenly father, and God gets to connect with his lost son. So with that, again, I'm going to read to you this passage. And And the whole reason why I shared all this is I want you to read the language or at least listen to the language as I read it again. And tell me if you can't sense that not only is God working upon this guy's life to reconnect with him, but that this person is now hungry to meet with God. It says, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but Because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Right? Do, you, do you sense that in this story, this wealthy tax collector? What is he doing? He's running and climbing trees to see Jesus. Right? When was the last time you saw the richest man in town running and climbing a tree in order to see God? It just doesn't happen. He's either absolutely nuts or God is working. I conclude the latter. God is working. But what happened when Christ saw Jesus or Zacchaeus? Right? Number one, what's amazing to me is that Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. Has he ever met him before? We don't think so. Right? No one, I, we know. But yet he knew his name. What does that tell you? It tells us that he couldn't wait to meet Zacchaeus. Right? When he entered Jericho that day, Zacchaeus was the one that was upon Jesus' heart. And he couldn't wait until he reached that Spot, which is the best part of this passage, right? It says in verse 5 that when Jesus reached the spot, and it's very bizarre, right? And I love these two words because when you read this in this particular passage, it's almost as if, God, they don't tell us what that spot is, but it's, it's almost as if God had instructed Jesus right under that tree is going to be that spot, that spot where you're going to meet Zacchaeus, this lost son of mine that we've been waiting for ever since, you know, Adam and Eve fell from the garden. You know, this is the spot where we're going to meet him, where you're going to meet him and you're going to call out his name and he's going to be ready to meet you and where you're going to reconcile with him. That's a spot where we're going to reconnect. And it's awesome 
that we don't even get an explanation, but it's the spot, as if we're supposed to already know that that was the place that God had orchestrated and ordained ever since the beginning of time for this lost son to meet his heavenly father. I love that. For me, the spot, I might have shared with you a long time ago, but it was in this dingy basement of this town, uh, of this church during some revival meeting that I didn't want to be at. The band was playing some bizarre song, but it was in that moment that God captured my heart. I just fell to my knees because I knew for the, for the first time in my whole life that I was loved unconditionally. You know, my whole life I had tried to please my parents, but I miserably failed. They always labeled me as a failure of the family. And so I always, that's, that's why I was convinced that I was. But then all of a sudden I meet this heavenly father who tells me that I'm loved unconditionally. And that there's nothing that I ever need to do because he's always proud of me because I was created in his image for him and by him. And it was the greatest night of my life. That particular, you know, tile on that floor to me is the most precious piece of real estate in the whole world. And the reason why is because it's my spot, you know. Can I give you two reasons why the spot in this particular passage is pretty awesome? The spot is awesome because, number one, it's the place where you meet Jesus face to face, right? And when you do, you discover above all things that you are unconditionally loved and you are unconditionally valued by God. That is absolutely amazing. You know, Zacchaeus met Christ and the first thing Christ does is what? He says, come down because I must stay with you tonight. Right? That's amazing. How many friends does Zacchaeus have? Probably zero. When was the last time someone came over to Zacchaeus' house? Probably never. But all of a sudden, Jesus says, I got to hang out with you today for a long time. And that must have been the greatest news for this person, right? The person that society rejects, Jesus must spend time with, right? And so that's who he is. Now, if I only had a few days to live, would I hang out with someone that all of society rejected and hated? Would you do that? No, I'm going to guess none of us would, right? Unless that person meant that much to me. And I got to think Jesus is similar, right? Why would Jesus hang out with someone that everyone rejected and hated? Unless Zacchaeus really meant that much to him and he did right and here's the good news so are we right if we were the ones in that town on that day we would be just as valuable to god no matter who you are no matter what you've done you are valuable to god you are valued and you are loved unconditionally by your heavenly father slash creator lover that's who you are in his Eyes. And there is a spot where Jesus wants to meet you and where you can come to know and understand how loved and cherished you really are. That's the first reason. Second, secondly, the spot is awesome because it's a place of confrontation, right? Does Zacchaeus know that he was separated from God because of his sins? I don't know, you know. But what we do know is that Jesus goes over to his house and shares what it means to be a child of God. And if Zacchaeus wanted to be in a relationship with God, he had to repent for all of his sins. And is that what happened? Yes, because in verse 8, it proves to us that that's exactly what happened. Verse 8 says, But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And how huge is this, right? After being loved by Christ, after being confronted with his sinfulness, 
And after reconnecting with God, what does Zacchaeus do? First, he does two things. First, he gives half of his wealth to the poor. That's huge. I don't know how much money you have, but would you ever give half of your money to the poor? This guy had a lot of money. And so he gives half the money to the poor. But in that one statement, let me tell you the significance of that statement. What he's actually doing is this. He's surrendering what he lived for the most in this life, which is money. And he surrenders that to God. Not only that, but he uses what he lived for the most in order to do what? To serve others and to bless others. It's amazing, right? God redeemed money in this guy's life. Secondly, he says that if he's ever cheated anyone, which he has totally big time, he'll pay four times the amount as compensation. That's ridiculous, right? It's one thing to just pay it back. Maybe you'll pay double, triple if you're a really good person, but quadruple? Who does that? And what's amazing about that is that the moment that he met God, wrongs had to be made right, right? True justice had to define his life, right? So it wasn't just like, oh, I did something wrong, I'm sorry, and I'm forgiven. But wow, you are so holy and amazing and beautiful. I want my life to reflect how amazing you are. And if I can do that by using the stuff like money or whatever it is, then if that can reveal how amazingly loved they are through that, by you, I want to do that. Do you see? That's repentance, isn't it? Not only that you know you did something wrong, but when you truly turn your whole life around so that you can now live for the things that God wants people to see through your life. Absolutely amazing what happens in this passage. But you know what the greatest part of what he says is, or the greatest part of this passage? Two little words once again. What are the first words that he says? He says, look, Lord. And I love that. That's my favorite part of this whole passage, actually, right? Because it's like this, the, what I hear is I hear this little kid who's like begging for the attention of his parents. Look, Lord, right? And what you, you, what you read in verse 7 is all these people are saying bad things about him, all around him. But he doesn't care. Because why? Because from this point on, he only lives for the attention of one person. He only lives to be valued by one person, and that is his heavenly Father. Look, Lord, I just want to please you. I don't care what the crowd says. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what society says. I just want to live for you. That's true repentance, isn't it? That's absolutely amazing. So what we conclude is that Zacchaeus was a man who was sought after by God. He was reconciled with God through faith in that house. He repents, and now he's transformed into a man who lives for Christ alone. Do you know what the theological word for that is? You guys are learning a lot of vocabulary today. Do you know what the theological word for that is? Saved. That's what it means to be saved. A person who knows that they were pursued by God. A person who knows that they were separated by God because of their sins. But a person who knows that Jesus Christ died for them upon the cross so that they could be reconciled to God. Not because of anything that they could ever do, but because of everything Christ did for them. And therefore, repents of their whole life so they can now live the life that God always designed for them to live. That's what we call saved. And Zacchaeus was saved on this day. That's why Jesus says in verse 9 and 10, today salvation has come to this house. Right? For the Son of Man, here we go, came to seek and to save what 
is lost. You guys understand that verse now? Does it make perfect sense to you? And that's why Jesus Christ came, not just only to seek after the lost, but to save them, right? Jesus came to seek after, to pursue sinners who need the forgiveness of Christ so they can now live for what they were created for, and that is God alone. So the question is, why do I preach this on Palm Sunday? And here's the answer. Because this story reveals what is upon Christ's heart five days before he has to literally die and give up his life. What was on Christ's heart? What drove him to be accused, tortured, and crucified five days from now on Good Friday? Simple. He wanted all men to know that they were lost in this world without God. Sin has separated them from God, but God the Father is on this all-out mission to reconnect with his children and to have a relationship with them. They are loved by God, and every person who would turn from their sins and put their faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus can now have forgiveness and be reconciled to God and have that relationship with him, right? And that's what was on Jesus's heart. And the moment you do that, that's when you'll start to truly experience this life that we were created for, the only life that will ever satisfy us. And if lived God's way and for God alone, will actually be used to make an eternal impact on this world. Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. You know, we said that this week was called Passion Week because of Christ's sufferings. It is a week of suffering culminating in his crucifixion at the end of the week. But it's also appropriately named because I really believe that this week really reveals to us and shows us Christ's deepest passion, which is what? To give his life so that we might be reconciled to God. And this story proves it, right? To seek and to save what was lost. There is a reason why all of you are here. There is a reason why you at 18 years old, 25 years old, 35 years old, 45 years old are still at church or maybe are visiting church for the first time. And the reason for that is because God is working within your life. You could choose not to be here, but for some reason today you woke up and you decide to rock up today. I believe that anyone who rocks up to church, God is doing something in this person's life. I don't care whether you think you just rocked up because you're your you're high school teacher or your your children's ministry said you teacher told you you had to come. It doesn't matter. God's doing something within your life so that you had to be here today. He is working in you. He is pursuing you. I am utterly convinced of that. And our greatest need is to be reconciled with God and to walk with him intimately. That's it, right? The reason why we're so dissatisfied with our lives if we are discontent is because just like my millionaire friends, we replace the only thing that can satisfy us with everything else that doesn't. And that's what we always, one week later, two weeks later, one month later, find ourselves once again in the exact same boat. You were created for the eternal. And you were created for eternal things. And you were created to be used eternally for God's eternal glory as well. But that begins when you realize that you need God. And I think that's why God's working upon our hearts. And the moment that you realize that you're a sinner in need of the forgiveness that Christ established for us upon the cross on Good Friday... That's when you can come and have an honest begin, beginning with God, right? Because you can put your faith in what Jesus did for you and now be reconciled to God and have a relationship with him. Maybe I'll give you a chance to do that. Maybe today is a place. Maybe this, the, the, the place where you're sitting at right now is your spot or will forever be your spot. Who knows? 
But I'll give you a chance to do that after our service today. But if you're already saved, this story is the reason why we need to allow this week to be a different week for us, a true week of renewal, a week that's absolutely centered where our hearts and our minds are centered upon the gospel and all that Christ went through so that we could be saved and know him. For some of us, we've gone to church for like 30 years and we may never have tapped into that, right? Or maybe we might have even missed out on that. Let's not let another year go by where we miss out. On God. So let's allow this week to truly be a week that brings us back to God, that renews our hearts, maybe even causes revival once again within us. Why? Because the Son of Man on Good Friday gave up his life so that we could know God and be his forever. He came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. I don't know where you might be today, but I share this message with you because I believe that there are some people within our church that are just empty or dissatisfied. They're discontent. You know, maybe you're a non-Christian. Maybe you're Christian. I don't know where you are, what you label yourself. It doesn't really matter. But what I do know is those feelings of discontent, those feelings of dissatisfaction, or maybe, you know, we, there's something going on within our heart that's just not right. This lack of peace or wholeness. That's God calling you. And one day you got to surrender to that. Maybe you think it isn't. Maybe it's just you had a fight with your mom or you can come up with all these earthly reasons. But God uses a lot of those things in order to awaken us to his reality. And I think that's what he's doing. And what a great week for you to come face to face with that. And maybe come face to face with your eternal reality. Jesus Christ came because he loved you and he died upon the cross on Good Friday so that he could forgive the sins that separate you from God. But if you trust in what he did for you upon the cross Good Friday, you can be forgiven and you can now begin your relationship with God. And I pray that if that doesn't happen today, that it happens this week. For those that might be saved, Let's really allow this week to be a week that we really come face to face with Christ once again, where we can just love him and be thankful for him. And I pray that your whole life gets aligned so that you can not only live eternally satisfied, but so that you can really live on this earth with a satisfaction that becomes contagious to our lost generation that desperately needs it. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you so much for your word today, for this story today. Because I just, there's, uh, there's people who are, who are dissatisfied and who are constantly searching for other things to fill their hearts, their time, their eyes, their, their lives. And Father, you know, I know you're working upon them because you're trying to awaken them to you. But Lord, I pray that you bother them even more this week. God, that for some reason it becomes absolutely unbearable how much they want to deny or run away from you. And Lord, awaken them to your love and awaken them to your passion for them so that they might turn and surrender to you and truly give their lives and surrender and stop living for the sin that they're living for and truly live for you and your glory and for the eternal things that you prepared for them. God, I pray that Jesus Christ will truly become their Lord and they'll be so proud and thankful and joyful to make him their Lord. And Father, I pray that you'll just bring them to the point where all they want to do is live to make you happy regardless of what society says regardless of what their friends think or their families think and father we pray that you'll make the people in this room a people that genuinely want to live for you and not people who are satisfied with just calling ourselves christians on the outside with the name but who desperately and genuinely just want to live it out for you so God, uh, work mightily upon our hearts for you. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.